Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're taking a look at Eileen. William Oldroyd's new feature is out. Uh, I did not see Lady Macbeth with Florence Pugh, his last movie, uh, but it got rave reviews. He's a big theater director. I'm very excited to talk about what is probably Anne Hathaway's uh, most exciting performance of 2023. Uh, we're also going to take a look at The Boy and the Heron. Hayao Miyazaki's returned after over 10 years in retirement with a new feature. I'd give him a hard time about it, but the man never misses, and The Boy and the Heron is no exception. Stick around for the review. We're talking about the Golden Globes. They're not as exciting as the Oscars, but hey, who knows? They might be a bellwether for what's to come. And there's a lot of good nominees that I'm excited to get to. And before we get to all that, we need to talk about the news our first story this week, uh, Austin Butler's The Bike Riders has a summer release date. Uh, you might remember the trailer of this, the motorcycle cruise, right? And Jodie Comer's getting interviewed about her exciting husband, Austin Butler, and uh, Tom Hardy does an accent in it. It was supposed to come out December 1st. Then it got pushed back. Now it's coming out again. Andy, why haven't we seen this movie yet? What, what What's the holdup? So it was mostly pushed because uh, they were not going to be able to get any uh, star power because of the strikes. And so Disney took it off the release slate entirely. They thought they were going to shelve it completely, but they've ended up selling it to Focus Features, who's going to distribute it in summer 2024 on June 21st. So it's going to be a big summer release. And uh, this has been described as kind of a... Uh, Goodfellas on motorcycles takes place in the 60s. Jodie Comer has this very like strong Midwest absent. Jodie Comer is British, if you didn't know. And then Tom Hardy doing some sort of mumblecore accent again, which I can't wait to see. So the movie is coming out, but it's going to be a bit, big summer release before we see. Very excited to see Tom Hardy's new weird accent. Uh, I, and also excited to see Mike Faced back. Uh, he did uh, what Spielberg's West Side Story and he, he, he shines in that movie. And I figured, okay, we're going to see more of this kid. This seems to be his next feature. Also, uh, he's in Luca Guadagnino's new movie. Yeah, Challengers. Also got pushed back. As a consumer, I'm being a little honest. Maybe you can help me feel better about this, Andy. This movie gets pushed back by Disney. Disney says, you know what? Maybe not for us. It's not really moving the way we want to. And they sell it. It, it, it tells me they lack confidence in the creativity. Is this destined to be like a bad movie? Wait, what, I mean, like I heard... I heard a lot of buzz, and usually a summer release like that usually means it's a pretty big deal. I think that they they really wanted to put this up for awards this year, and they're going to miss that window because that's usually the October through the, the end of the year. Um, so they just didn't want to hold on to it for a whole nother year and would rather distribute it to someone else. I don't know why they're not distributing it themselves. Maybe it's not quite close enough to the Disney brand, but um, I think that's why it's being moved or why it's been sold. June 21st, 2024 is when we're going to be expecting the bike riders. Don't know what it'll be going up against that week, but uh, it'll be no slouch for sure. And hey, now that uh, the, the actors can do press for it since the SAG after strikes are over, uh, we should get Tom Hardy talking about his weird accent. And that's always exciting. Uh, our next story. This one's real interesting. Probably the biggest story of the week. Uh, Tubi, the free streaming service, is going to be streaming DC's The Batman and Suicide Squad and other DC Universe movies and TV shows. Variety reported on this this week. Apparently, Warner Brothers is just striking deals with ad-supported streamer Tubi to put a bunch of DC content over there. Hold on a second, Andy. I thought this is why HBO is so expensive. Why why, why are the free platforms getting this premium swag? Well, what's interesting is when the streaming, when streaming first started, everyone was initially licensing their properties out to like Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu maybe. 
you know, and it was an easy deal. It was quick money. You just licensed out your content. Um, but then everyone started trying to create their own uh, streaming service because they saw how much money Netflix was making. And so then everyone pulled their content. And now, but then everyone realized how expensive and unprofitable streaming is. So now we're back to the licensing again. So we're kind of coming full circle in the streaming uh, business. And it's not just the Batman, but other uh, recent DC properties like the Suicide Squad, Black Adam, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, um, Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, plus a huge amount of uh, kind of reality TV stuff that Warner Brothers does is going to Tubi, which kind of makes me think of like, why am I paying for Max if you're just licensing out your content to the free services? Well, one thing's for sure, uh, ad-supported services make a silly amount of money. And it seems like a kind of odd idea, right? Like, aren't we just watching TV again? But the difference is, if you're watching on Tubi, you're not paying for cable. Just CBS directly is making their money off the ads. Or in this case, Warner Brothers, who is striking up a bunch of exclusive channels with Tubi as well, like Warner Brothers TV Classic Cinema and TV in the Garage. Oh, that's exciting. TV, Warner Brothers TV, the FBI. Ooh, it's just going to be FBI stuff all the time on Tubi. Uh, I don't check out Tubi really at all. I, I've heard that they have a pretty deep bench for like old horror movies and like odd one-off features. Uh, but, you know, I guess it's a good thing that Warner Brothers is double dipping. I mean, I think I feel like as, as skeptics of you, is the cynical person would say that Warner Brothers has just been upping the price of HBO, getting it to a point where we're all playing this wildly inflated price, and then just licensing out content on the back end anyway and making like double money, right? They're getting like the double fees from subscribers and they get license they, they get ad dollars from licensed stuff, right? Like this is kind of money. follow yeah. This is kind of following the old model of cable TV where the networks they would make money on both ends. They'd, they'd make money from from studios uh, selling, you know, essentially selling their their content to the uh, or paying paying the, the the networks to put it on their screen, and then they were also getting paid by advertisers for advertising during the shows. And we're kind of coming back to that. And this is also a, uh, an issue because we've reached kind of peak viewership. Like it, we're done of the days of getting like five of Netflix getting five million more viewers every quarter it's kind of peaking and so now the only place to go to get even more money is the ad, ad space and so that's where we're kind of at in the, the whole streaming landscape yeah credit words do i look it's a great library and let's remember that dc is pivoting heavily creatively uh, going forward right james gunn is moving forward with new superman in 2025 we're going in a different direction from there so what you're getting here is a lot of like you know Art, Older not archive stuff. DC, yeah, but like the the the, the DC classic, right? Right, right? Coca Cola classic. That's what you're getting. Plus, of course, Matt Reeves, the Batman, Joker. You will still get things that tie in. Like, ultimately, probably a good thing for DC fans, right? More people seeing DC content is a good thing, I think. Yeah, d definitely. And like you said, the the stuff does have expiration dates on it. Um, I mean, the Batman's a couple of years old, but like things like Suicide Squad is from 2016. So we're looking at seven, eight, nine, ten 10-year-old movies. So it's it's not really like the end of the world. It it worries me if more new things start kind of cropping up on um, uh, these fast channels, as they call them. Yeah. Uh, I and again, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a subscriber, but I've I've heard nothing but good things. If you if you're willing to watch the ads, anything can happen. Um and one more story this week regarding the possibilities of anything happening. Uh, I think I was surprised to see uh, Hayao Miyazaki's The Boy and the Heron hitting a $12.8 million opening in the United States. 
Uh, this is the biggest opening of his movies ever, which is weird because Miyazaki, I think, is acclaimed in, in circles of people who know him, but like, he's not a household name. You could not walk into an American house and say, do you know who Hayao Miyazaki is? And they would know. Like, So this is a bit of a surprise that this movie's had this much buzz. Uh, what, what What's going on at the box office, Andy? Yeah, The Boy and the Heron had a huge opening, $12.8 million, the biggest of Hayao Miyazaki's career, like you said. Uh, I think the biggest opening for like a Japanese animated film, uh, definitely the first time it's ever opened number one at the box office. Also, this has already done huge numbers in Japan. It's made over $80 million, so we're, we're looking at over $100 million for this animated film. Um, also, uh, Godzilla Minus One is also in the top five so it's kind of the first time that two japanese films fully made japanese made films are in the top of the box office reminds me of when i was a kid and like we used to watch you know looney tunes and chills whatever western animation on saturday morning cartoons and slowly over time you get like pokemon and digimon and Yu-Gi-Oh. before you know it right like the whole medium shifted and like what better time right like we are fortunate that like amazing stories are coming out of different parts of the world and coming to a place where we can watch them in cinemas like that's a good thing right i i god i am amazed at the number of foreign films i've seen that have been like stellar not just because 2023 is a stellar year in film but because i don't know it's just the way it works like i the world's getting smaller the internet brings us together ultimately a good thing right i have no problem with good movies coming out and boy in the heron is no exception. We'll be doing the review at the end of the episode, so stick around for that. We're also going to talk about Eileen and the Golden Globes for that. But one more thing. Uh, did we talk about Renaissance, Andy? We should talk about Renaissance. We, yes. Uh, the Renaissance, which is Beyonce's uh, concert film, which opened pretty well last week, had a steep drop-off, almost 80%, um, which isn't unexpected. Uh, Taylor Swift's uh, Huge Eras Tour concert film also had a pretty big drop-off. A lot of these... The concert films are one and done. Like people don't really go back to them, so that's not surprising. But it's still done pretty good business for a concert film, and we're probably going to continue to see these as a trend. Right, it's word of mouth. Right, you're either gonna you're either gonna go see that concert film because you really want to see it, or you will, uh, you know, skip it. But you're probably not going to go see it and tell your friends, "Oh my God, we have to go again." Right, like it's probably a one and done. Makes sense. Not that odd. Uh, ultimately, not a bad weekend at the movies, but as far as the show is concerned and the films we've seen, uh, we're fortunate this week, I think. Uh, it's not every week we get to talk about mo two movies that are like really bold and interesting, um, and I think the lineup this week's really stellar. Starting with this first one, of course, uh, I should not hog the stage anymore. Andy's agreed to take the summary, so Andy, please um, take it away. Eileen. So this is about Eileen, um, who is played by Thomason McKenzie. This takes place in the 60s. Uh, Eileen is kind of living in a trapped world. She works at a local prison. She's a kind of secretary uh, there. She lives at home with her kind of drunken, forcefully retired uh, father, who's a former police officer, played uh, by Shea Wiggum. Um, Eileen is kind of constantly uh, just verbally abused and harassed uh, by the older women at the uh, prison who say like, yeah, you're too old. Why aren't you married? Why don't you have children? Uh, her father kind of says the same thing. You're not going to be anything, Eileen. You're never going to go anywhere. You're going to die in this house. Kind of, it kind of takes on a lot of abuse. When one day uh, Anne Hathaway's 
character Rebecca, who's uh, the new prison psychologist, shows up, and she's just absolutely fabulous. She uh, dresses really stylishly. She has big, uh, bright platinum blonde hair. She drives a red Thunderbird. Is just the exact opposite of what Eileen is and is everything Eileen kind of want, wants to be. Um, they strike up a, a friendship and get to know each other. And you, the film kind of goes in one one direction and then is kind of about a lot of other things about uh, kind of prejudging people of appearances and what they may or may not be. And it's also about the prison that Eileen lives in metaphoric, metaphorically, not just where she works at. So that's all I'm going to say about our setup. Zach, what'd you think? Uh, Eileen is a really unique, feature um it's from william oldroyd who's traditionally a theater director his last movie was lady macbeth that was his first i think directorial feature uh and that was in 2016 so it's been a while since he's done that it was with florence Pugh, and now we have thompson mckenzie hot off the set of last night in soho and anne hathaway who you can tell like really read this script and wanted to dig in to the character she she plays it like it's shakespeare and she's great like uh it's based on a book uh the author of the book also helped pen the screenplay uh, and it's funny, the author whose name is escaping me, unfortunately, right now, I'll have to figure it out when, when Andy's talking next. Uh, they said that they like the movie more than the book, actually. I think a rare thing. I think it's just tighter. And ultimately, it's a character drama, right? Like, that's ultimately what we're doing. We're looking at a director of theater. Like, he's he's getting into who these characters are. And Eileen is this, like, fascinatingly vulnerable, small person who is just so pushed around by her life and the ele- the, the people in it. And it's charming, really, for most of the film, for her to find not only this role model character in this uh, lightning bolt that is uh, uh, that is Anne Hathaway, who's drifted into the prison, drifted into her life, Rebecca, um, but also maybe develop an affinity for this person, right? And 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 start to kind of kind of fancy them, and 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 Rebecca teaches her how to smoke, and then they go dancing, uh, and then before you know it, uh, Eileen goes in a very exciting, a very exciting direction. Um, that we'll talk about more in a second. I, I I liked Eileen a lot, but it's also small. And I think that's important. It's intimate. And it's not... It. I liked it a lot, I guess. And we'll, we'll talk more about it. Uh, where do we start talking about this, Andy? Oh, gosh. Where to, where to start? The, there's so much. Um, I want to kind of talk about tone because this is a very serious movie but it's also kind of a dark comedy like there are some moments that are so funny like uh eileen starts to kind of copy everything that that dr rebecca does like dr rebecca smokes and she kind of drinks heavily and she's a little bit more on the wild side and thomas mckenzie has never really indulged and she starts i mean it's so funny because she just you get those comedic moments where she does like she doesn't really know how to like drink drink like drink properly and not uh, drink too much, which she definitely does. Like it's funny watching her trying to smoke a cigarette and just kind of cough on it. And then uh, there's a, there's a bit about uh, making she she drinks coffee uh, and puts so much sugar in it, like she won't stop pouring it in because she doesn't really know how to how to mix it. So you get these really funny moments amongst very serious things, like uh, her father, like I said, played brilliantly by uh, Shea Wiggum, is just kind of a, a, a drunk. He's an alcoholic. He's been forcefully retired from the uh, police station. He waves his gun around and scares the, the neighbors. He's very verbally abusive to her. He's like, you're nothing like your mother. You'll, you'll never be anything like she was. 
you'll never get married. Like he's, he's, he's terrible to her. And, uh, she experiences a lot of that throughout the film, but then she also, well, one thing I enjoy, she has these fantasies constantly of different types of, uh, things she wants to do to herself, to other people, both good and bad. And, and it's a good kind of way of putting this in the character's, um, mind. Uh, Dr. Rebecca played by, again, by Anne Hathaway, is that she's that femme fatale. She just, she looks like she's trouble and she definitely is in a, in a lot of ways. Um, and, but is also has a few secrets of, of her own that we might not think of. And the cast is really stellar in this. Yeah, I, I like the way the film brings you into like Eileen's world. It's slow at first and it kind of takes its time. Um, but Eileen is very prominently on screen. She's a character who's got troubles of her own. She's in no way perfect. Like not only is she meek, um, but she doesn't usually like take advantage of uh, speaking her mind. Uh, she, she, she sits back. Uh, she's got a couple of odd psychological twerks. She's prone to maybe daydreaming. Uh, sometimes she doesn't show up to work. And uh, most interestingly, she's a bit of a, she's a, bit of a pervert, actually, uh, which is <laughs> odd. Film kind of opens with that, just gets you going. Like, oh, God, okay, this is where we're at. But, um, yeah, like meeting this character of Rebecca is, is a revelation for her because Rebecca is not only like this object of desire, but also everything she desires herself to be. Uh, Rebecca, meanwhile, of course, is... Classic femme fatale. People have said this film is Hitchcockian, and I think it's important to address why that is. A, it's because of its set dressing. Just like uh, uh, Alexander Payne's The Holdovers, this whole movie is film grain and old production stills and classic soundtrack. It, it's very, like, trying to feel older, right? Everything's Everything fits in place. All the cars are old. Everybody's wearing older outfits. The houses are kind of run down. Uh, but more importantly... Anne Hathaway looks like she walked out of Psycho, right? Like she, yeah. she, she looks like our our platinum blonde. Uh, she, she looks like she walked out of that movie and into this one. And she comes from an odd place, right? She went to Harvard, but the prison, uh, uh, the, the guy who runs the prison wasn't prison warden. Said she might have gone somewhere else. And and she smokes and has this car, but she says she didn't really come from money. And and she's kind of perplexing and the movie does a really good job of like drawing you in to try to reel you in to see as the audience member like who is this person really and meanwhile Eileen is getting drawn in by her gravitas and and you know who she is and Shay Wiggum is like the drunkest slob ever and he's so mean like for as funny so as mean. this movie can be in its most cynical moments uh he's so mean laughably mean almost uh to her and so it's he doesn't hit her and he's just brutally verbal my God, brutally verbal, verbal abuse uh, for Eileen. So in this weird way, like you, the audience, you really get invested in, in what Eileen's doing just because you want her so much to escape this life, like escape these problems she has and become the confident person that she so much sees Rebecca to be. Um, but then like the film takes an interesting turn and that's, that would be the final reason I think people call it Hitchcockian and I don't think you, Andy and I are going to reveal any of that here. And and yeah. No, and then, like I said, the... Uh, the f the film takes some some really uh it, it sets up a lot of expectations and it follows through on some of them and, and some not not as much w what's fascinating to me is is um just again the prison that Eileen lives in uh, the one of expectations of you know she's like a she's in her young 20s and everyone's asking her why she's not married and you know it's it's revealed she had to drop out of out of school to care for for her dad, but she's kind of trapped uh, by that. So a lot of the movies is about her breaking free. Um, 
and I would say she's sexually frustrated. I wouldn't say she's a she's a pervert, but that's part of being a young twenties and not having any prospects because you just work all day and take care of your drunk dad. Um, you know, it, it's a very fr- you're very frustrated for her, and and you're cheering on her side for her to break out of this kind of mundane life that she's kind of been forced into. You're right. The backdrop of the the boys' prison is really interesting. Like it's a it's a fascinating little like cage to rattle your characters around in. You know, because there's so much like trauma and problems and and problem children there. Um, there is a really I should say while while I while I'm talking about how cynical this movie is, uh, a, a part bits that's funny. There's a really great like Christmas play scene when there's all these kids in the audience that are like acting up and and, and screwing it up and shouting at the the poor actors and uh really really funny but um i think like what makes this movie work so good is its script and your performances uh, william older does a great job behind the camera but it's like four by three tight and it's got good framing but it's real claustrophobic and it fits the prison setting it fits the prison setting great um but man i cannot understate how great anne hathaway is in this movie like she's awesome like really sinking her teeth in this is a character i can really dig into a little bit of ambiguity a bit of mystery meanwhile thomas mckenzie i think is understated and probably once again underrated like i i feel like i was maybe harsh on my soho review because i think she really is tremendous in that movie especially considering something wildly different like jojo rabbit where she's a much more confident individual like eileen manages to be this person who is very sympathetic you want to be friends with Eileen, right? You want to reach reach to the screen and give her a hug when her dad's shouting at her. Um, but at the same time, like you want Eileen to do the right thing, and you want ultimately want her to find her way. And when she meets this Rebecca character, and they end up kind of traveling down this path together, you find that uh, she may or may not get there, you know. And and I think that's good tension. Like it makes it exciting for what ultimately would be like a smaller film in the hands of any other director. Old Red really brings it out, like adds some life and some color to it. Yeah, one thing I wanted to comment on was the the ratio. It's not four by three. It's I just looked it up. It's a one point six six. Which, if you've seen The Witch, uh, not Ari Aster, the other one, Robert Eggers, um, it's that same kind of aspect ratio where the film kind of seems taller. It's not as wide as it it normally is, and it really gives us just a lot of height uh, in the movie. So another interesting uh, choice. Mm, uh, by the way, uh, the author is a Tessa Moshfet. I'm sorry. Uh, she wrote the original book. Uh, she wrote the uh, script with her uh, writing partner, Luke Goebel. I actually might be partners too, but I'm not sure. And I shouldn't speak on that. Anyway, Andy, I'm running out of things to say. I don't want to give anything away about Eileen. Any other thoughts or recommendations? I'm ready. Uh, Andy, would you recommend Eileen? Uh, absolutely. It's a phenomenal film. Really interesting characters and situation. It's really funny. Content warning, it does cover some very serious uh, t- topics about domestic abuse and things of that nature. So just be prepared for that, despite it being very funny. It is also very, very dark. But um, I really enjoyed it and highly recommend. Yeah, I think same boat. It's good stuff. I don't think you need to rush to a theater to see it, unless you have like you know a cozy little indie cinema near you. You can like get a cup of coffee and sneak in and kind of enjoy Eileen because it's understated but when it comes to streaming i think you should definitely check it out like relax one evening grab a cocktail it's not long it's 97 minutes it's a little like watching a play like it's thoughtful it doesn't play out like a play it's not like darren aronofsky's the whale or anything but like in the way that it's intimate and it's you know really concentrated and like i i think it's good stuff i think you'll enjoy eileen but uh we have much 
bigger fish to fry than just Eileen this year because we need to talk about everything that's happened in 2023. Uh, in a tight segment, we're going to review some nominees, an exciting awards ceremony coming up, the Golden Globes. Andy, what do we call this segment? It's time for the death of cinema. So we're talking the Golden Globe nominations. Uh, one of the big first uh, awards uh, list has just come out on Monday. And these aren't the most reputable awards, but they're a bit of a precursor for the Oscars. Uh, a lot of times they line up at least somewhat with what those nominees might be. The Oscars get announced later in January. There are a ton of nominees because uh, they split things into both uh, drama and comedy categories and there are they've also bumped the number of nominees from five to six so there's basically twice as many nominees as you would get in something like the oscars so we're going to go through the most important ones and we're going to do it quick since there are so many um so i'm going to start with best motion picture drama which is oppenheimer killers of the flower moon maestro past lives the zone of interest and anatomy of a fall zach what are you thinking of this category man probably I don't know. I think it's going to be Oppenheimer or Killers, honestly. Like, I know A24 has got a couple of features on here. I haven't seen Zone of Interest, but it feels real high concept based on what I've seen. Same with Anatomy of a Fall. Past Lives, I think, again, it's too big. And I don't, I just don't know enough about Maestro to, to say for sure. So I think it's going to be one of those two. You got one? Uh, probably Oppenheimer. Maestro doesn't come out until Christmas on Netflix. And then the Zone of Interest isn't coming out until like February. So that's supposed to be a big deal, but it's not coming out for a while. Let's remember the Golden Globes is voted on by like 300 journalists, all right. Whereas the Academy is like 10,000 industry people, so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tighter range, slightly different. Uh, best picture musical or comedy? Uh, the nominees are Barbie, Poor Things, American Fiction, The Holdovers, May December, and Air from Ben Affleck, right? That Matt Damon story of a champion, but really a story of Nike movie. Uh, Andy, what do you think? How? Why is Air on here? Why at all? is Air on? <laughs> I mean, I Eileen should, honestly, Eileen should should be on there. Uh, Barbie's probably going to win this category. I've heard good things about American fiction. That's also coming out on Christmas. Nice to see the holdovers on there. A lot of controversy beside, behind May, December being in the co comedy category because that's, yeah, th there is some, it is parody in some ways, but it is a serious drama about uh, child sexual assault. So it's a lot of people have been like, why is this in this category? But that's kind of, it's just a weird way that they, it, yeah. uh, the Golden Globes are. Uh, you um, should, if you want to know more, go check out our review from May, December last week. It's great. Would recommend. It's on YouTube if the individual. Uh, I think Barbie's probably taking it. Like, I don't, I, yeah, I, I think Barbie's taking it. How is Barbie not taking it, right? Uh, yeah. I'm, no, you're next. Go ahead. Best director, uh, motion, and this is just for both. Um, Bradley Cooper for Maestro, Greta Gerwig, Barbie, Yorgos Lanthimos for Poor Things, which does, comes out this Friday, Christopher Nolan for Oppenheimer, Scorsese for Killers of the Flower Moon, and Celine Song for Past Lives. I what do you feel think like of that it's going to be. I feel like it's going to be Scorsese or Nolan again. I don't know. I like. I know Oppenheimer and Flower Moon are very different films, but like, I just think. They're both like two and a half hour period blockbusters, right? Like I feel like they start to get lumped together a little bit. I I would love to see something like Yorgos Lanthimos win for Poor Things, but your Yorgos Lanthimos fans know that doesn't that doesn't happen. Yeah. Right? I not, mean, I'd love to see Greta Ger Gerwig sure. win. <laughs> win Celine this. Song um, for Past Lives, Brooke Cooper, maybe even for Maestro. But I 
I, I, I the, just don't know. Yeah, they're probably gonna go with the bigger films. Celine's song is, too, I think, too new. Um, Bradley Cooper, I don't know. I, I hear that people are annoyed at how much he's like, yes, I, I starred and directed in it too. We'll see. And also, everyone needs to remember that uh, these awards are not merit based at all. Uh, all of the, during award season, uh, these films are campaigned for. There's a lot of money poured in. There's a, a lot of marketing behind it. There's politics. There's things like, well, this person won before, so now it's time for someone new. So, and it can get a real ugly and kind of dirty game. So just keep that in mind that this is not a merit based thing. At, at all uh zach what's our next category best screenplay for motion picture uh, barbie poor things oppenheimer killers of the flower moon past lives anatomy of a fall we've heard all of these already i think my it's probably lo, like low-key i think it's going to be barbie like i just feel like that script does so much work you tell people there's a barbie movie in theaters they don't care you go see it, you go, oh, I get why this made a billion dollars. Like that script is kind of the whole thing. It's pretty incredible, but I also hear Poor Things is pretty wild. And for what it's worth, Anatomy of Fall is a great script, but I don't know. What do you think? So what's interesting about this is that uh, they don't differentiate between original scripts and scripts based on previous works, like like Killers of the Flower Moon and Oppenheimer, both based on books. Uh, so it's just kind of an interesting category. I, I think honestly barbie for me because i i think that film had a huge challenge in creating a story off a toy that has no like real backstory or anything like that yeah um that's pretty interesting a lot of acting awards like i said because there's there's two two big categories uh best performance by an actor drama bradley cooper maestro killian murphy cillian murphy oppenheimer Leonardo DiCaprio, Killers of the Flower Moon, Coleman, Domingo, and Rustin, which we haven't really seen much about, Andrew Scott, All of Us Strangers, and Barry Keoghan in Saltburn. First off, love Coleman Domingo. Glad to see him on here. I haven't seen Rustin, but my man's got chops. I hear Andrew Scott's great in All of Us Strangers, but haven't seen it. If I had to pick one, I think I'm going to go with DiCaprio. The way he does that like underbite thing, and I've been quoting, <laughs> I do love that money, sir, every day since I've seen that movie. Like, It's got memes. I... Personal favorite, it's DiCaprio by a nose, but also I love Barry and Saltburn. What, what do you think, Andy? Uh, Killian Murphy for me, for sure. And again, yeah. it might be a precursor to see who who wins, uh, or uh, who gets nominated for, for the Oscars. Well, more importantly than best performance by an actor, best performance by actress. Uh, we got Lily, Lily Gladstone, Close of the Flower Moon, fan favorite this year. Carrie Mulligan in Maestro, Sandra Hewler in Anatomy of a Fall, Annette Bening in Nyad, if not even... Not even know what that don't don't even know what that it's movie's a, about. It's a, she's a swimmer. Greta Lee in Past Lives and Gailey Spaney in Priscilla, which Andy covered on the show, and that review did surprisingly well on YouTube. I was really surprised, Andy. So you must have covered it good. Uh, who do you think's taking it, Andy? Uh, a lot of hype behind Lily Gladstone as a newcomer, but man, this is a really stacked category. All these gave incredible performances in in these films. So we'll see who comes uh, out on. Out on top. Um, moving on to best performance by an actress, musical or comedy. Fantasia Barino for The Color Purple. Jennifer Lawrence, No Hard Feelings, which is a big surprise. Natalie Portman for May, December. Alma Poisty for Fallen Leaves, which I haven't heard anything about. Margot Robbie for Barbie and Emma Stone for Poor Things. Yeah. Everybody get out of Barbie's way, right? It's like Robbie's walking off that stage. It has to. She's, she's got to be. She's Barbie. That's my pick. It's it's. I, I like Listen, and I like it's not just because she's good in the movie. Like I love Margot Robbie. Everybody else is great too. But again, like it's it's Barbie. It's Barbie. 
And the Golden Globes yeah. is a journalist thing. Like, this is all they do. Like, uh, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Well, there's also th- things like, you know, they want to get viewers in and they want to reward movies that people know and have seen. And like, Poor Things is coming out this this week. Meanwhile, Barbie's had six months of buzz for, yes. for uh, if, um, you know, uh, awards. If, if Past Lives or Anatomy of Fall win any of these, 65% of the internet's going to be like, why do they give movies, awards to stupid movies nobody's seen? I've never heard of this picture. Like, come on. Like, it, it's, a lot of it's got to be mainstream stuff. But of course, the mainstream stuff is good. Made a billion dollars. Like, respect. Am I up next? Actress? Yep. Actor? I've, I've, I've Act- lost the plot. Actor, Actor musical, or comedy. Actor, musical, or comedy. Nick Cage in Dream Scenario. Timothy Chalamet in Wonka. Matt Damon in Air. Paul Giamatti in The Holdovers. Joaquin Phoenix in, in Bo is Afraid. And Jeffrey Wright, American Fiction. Now listen, I love Jeffrey Wright. I haven't seen American Fiction, but my man's got talent. But if there's anybody on this list who should be getting it, it's Giamatti for The Holdovers. And then secondly, maybe like, I don't know, Timothy Chalamet for Wonka. I think people hated Bo is Afraid enough to not give Joaquin <laughs> Phoenix anything, which is a shame because I think that movie's cool. But and I I don't know about Dream Scenario with Nick Cannon. Maybe right fan favorite. I, I what do you think? Um, I don't know why Nicolas Cage is on this list. I heard he's he's good, but it, it I think he's just they needed like an industry veteran. Um, not not that Giamatti and Phoenix are they. Really surprised to see Joaquin Phoenix on this. Like, but this is the only nomination for Bo is Afraid, which, like you said, I think everyone uh, hated. Again, it's going to be about um, profile and something like Wonka is going to be a really high profile movie, so it could go there. Uh, you never know. Um, let's see. Best actor, motion. Gosh, there's so many. A supporting uh, actor. I mean, we, so, we skipped out like score, cinematography. Yeah, we, uh, yeah that's the, there's. Yeah, we don't. We, so listen, many. supporting actors. There's, are there's huge, all these. But this th- is the. These are the supporting awards. They're fine. All right, we, we don't need to get to them. We're, we're, move, we're moving. Yeah, along. moving and shaking. Jumping down to yeah, original score uh, for motion picture. Picture Ludwig Göransson for Oppenheimer, Gerskin Fendrix for Poor Things, Robbie Robertson for Killers of the Flower Moon, Michael Levi for The Zone of Interest, Daniel Pemberton for Spider Man Across the Spider Verse, and Joe. Hisashi for The Boy and the Heron. My favorite score of the year is still uh, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. I don't think that that will win. I think it'll probably go to Goranson, but um, love the Spider-Verse soundtrack. I think it's Goranson, not only because I think it's uh, one of the most special of the year. It's why it's on this list. Um, but also because I very smugly leaned over to Andy during the credits of Oppenheimer. I was like, score of the year. Score of the year, right? That's going to be like I called my <laughs> shot so early. I got to stick with it now. Uh, also worth mentioning, we're going to talk about Boy and the Heron in a minute, uh, but the score for Boy and the Heron, Joy Hisashi, is on here for a good reason. It's excellent. I'm very excited to talk about it. Uh, I want to jump down to Best Motion Picture Animated. Animated Motion Pictures, six categories. Uh, the Boy and the Heron, Speak of the Devil, talking about that in just a minute. Elemental from Disney, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, the Super Mario Brothers movie, billion-dollar film this year, remember, uh, Suzume and Wish, the Disney animated princess film. Quite the list. Andy, what good, what, what, what stellar animated feature this year isn't on here? Which one's missing? Do you know? This category this year is an abomination because three of these yeah. should maybe not be on, on here. And the big snub goes to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Dude. Mayhem, which was an excellent, one of my favorite films of the year period, one of the best animated films of the year, not on this list. Somehow, uh, Disney's Wish, which has been a huge bomb and no one likes it and it's critically in audiences like, uh, have, have panned it. 
Uh, Elemental is, is solid, but like the Super Mario Brothers movie is only on here because it made a lot of money because like we've said in our review, it's kind of a movie for babies. A lot of people also complaining that Nimona is not on here, which we didn't review, but is also a great animated film uh, from this Actually, I mean, we did a mini review for Nimona. I covered that one. Yeah, yeah. That's on oh, the that's channel right, too. You right. can go check it out. Yeah, it's on YouTube. Uh, yeah, I think my favorite here is, it's probably Spider-Verse, right? Personal favorite, Heron. It's it's Heron by a nose. But dude, Spider-Verse is awesome. And like, it's hard to deny how much buzz that had going in. Like it's, come on, it's Spider-Verse, right? Yeah. And like I said, a whole lot of Disney pandering going on here or just pandering to the big studios because everything else is is much smaller. Like uh, G-Kids is who distributes the boy and the Heron, Toho Company, uh, who also owns the rights to Godzilla, made Suzume. And then they're just pandering to to D- Disney, who just kind of made mediocre animated films this year. Jumping down to our kind of last uh, category, this is a brand new one that they introduced here. It's cinematic and box office achievement, this which we great. don't really know. We don't know what that means. Uh, they say, it should go again, to, they say none of these are merit-based, but this one feels like it might be a little merit-based. Or at least money-based. Um, yeah. So this is under this one is Barbie, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three, John Wick Chapter Four, Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One, Oppenheimer, Spider Man Across the Spider Verse, the Super Mario Brothers movie, and Taylor Swift: The Eras Tour? Question mark. Um, so ideally, this would just go to the whoever made the most money, but they want to try to make it more complicated than that. So that's why it says cinematic and box of office achievement. No one knows what that means. No one knows what the metric is, um, and why this is a category at all. I tell you, if the box office achievement is put out a flat Tom Cruise movie, then Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is the king of the list here. But I don't really know what exactly this means. And in that way, I think it's exciting, right? People talk about it. We're talking about it here on our Goofy Movie Podcast. But if you get a look at one of these doing particularly incredible, I like low-key, it's probably Taylor Swift, right? Like, I would love to say Barbie, just real quick, or Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 being a big bump uh, in the Marvel space when a lot of Marvel movies have been doing great. John Wick Chapter 4, right? Incredible action sequences in there. Oppenheimer, huge. Spider-Man across the like All of these have their own reason, I think, for being on here. I don't know how you just pluck one out and say this is the one of that because all of those are fairly different things. But I don't know. Like, if anything, I think, like, blew the socks off the box office this year, it's probably the heiress to her and then maybe Barbie following that. Yeah. It, it's difficult to say for one thing, mission impossible dead reckoning, uh, lost money. Like it was a commercial commercially under underwhelming. I don't think it was a bomb, but it, it didn't make near as much money as they, they were hoping. So it's surprised that that's even on there. Also, this is the only category with eight entries, which kind of doesn't make sense. Like you should probably just keep it to five or six. Um, and if it's going, if it's just, based on money, then it's just Barbie because that was the most profitable film of the year. Uh, really confusing category. And this is just a way to get, you know, films that more people have seen in the awards that way that they're hopefully have more people watching the awards. And they added Taylor Swift so they can hopefully get Taylor Swift to, you know, Zoom, do a Zoom meeting and show up on the, the awards like that. Like that's the only reason that's on. That, and that film was very profitable to, despite it was made for like $20 million or something. So, Dude, I, I didn't even think about that. How many clicks do they get if, how much ad revenue does the Golden Globes rake in if they get Taylor Swift walking on stage to accept a Golden Globe? No way. Right? No, how, no way how many she people shows are going to watch up. that video? Like, She's going to do a pre-recorded video. Thank you so much. 
You shifted your whole thing. Yeah, no, it'll be fine. I honestly, I hope she does. Dude, that movie made a ton of money. Like, if, uh, genuinely, I think if you're looking at some kind of box office achievement award, like low key, that 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 should be considered. That's why she's on the list. Ultimately, not bad at the Golden Globes this year. I do think like last year, the Oscars will be a bit different. We'll probably get a bit more emphasis on some of the more obscure stuff. I think we'll see more Ari Aster this year at the Oscars. Uh, more Bo is afraid. Hopefully, something like Eileen getting something like a screenplay. I don't. I don't know. But uh, maybe Anne, I, again, I, I said on Twitter, any of the year, Anne Hathaway would be getting an Oscar nom for Eileen. But I don't think she's going to this year just because the category is completely stacked. Incredible year at the movies. And it seems like it's going to be a good year at the Golden Globes, right, Andy? Yeah, it, it'll be interesting. Interesting to see who wins and what how that shapes the the Oscar nominees because uh, these awards are in mid to early January and then a couple of weeks later it's the Oscar nomination so it'll be interesting mm. to see what what uh what comes up I'll tell you what'll be more interesting uh talking about the boy and the heron I'm really excited to talk about this movie uh this is the last movie we're talking about for this episode uh, and then we'll talk about what's coming out next week um but uh the boy and the heron is a very unique feature I should probably just get into the review bit that makes sense let me put the footage on screen uh the movie is uh the boy and the heron so The Boy and the Heron is Hayao Miyazaki's return to cinema after over a decade in retirement. The legendary animator is back with a feature that is similar, I think, to a lot of his older work in parts, carries a lot of similar themes, but uniquely features a looser narrative space, almost more of a, a dreamlike kind of place to tell our story. Our story is of young Mahito, a young boy who is quickly moved out of Tokyo uh, during the war following the air bombing of a factory where his mother is unfortunately tragically killed. Uh, he and his father uh, move out to uh, out of the city, uh, in, into the country. Uh, it opens just like any other good Miyazaki movie with, a, with a, a kid in transition to a new place, right, that they can't control. Uh, and he, Mahito travels out there. He meets his new mother. Uh, he meets the, the grannies and the people that live in this wonderful old place. And, and just across the field, he sees this odd tower uh, that his granduncle had built, he finds out. And it's traveling to that tower where he sees uh, a gray heron, right? A symbol of death, uh, something that feels like maybe it's almost kind of related to these feelings, these dreams he has of his mom and this tragic fire. Uh, and it's following that heron into the tower where Mahito travels to a world of the living and the dead and has to discover like what a sense of renewal is and how that affects his worldview and embracing the chaos. Many of the themes you find in a Hayao Miyazaki picture, um, but in a uniquely different way. And I'm excited to talk about this because it's not just Hayao Miyazaki doing a film. This is Hayao Miyazaki growing. And changing, it's it's semi autobiographical. Even there are characters in here that feel like Miyazaki today. There are characters in here that represent, I think, a younger artist, right, up and coming, growing into a world where they want something to change. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about this feature with you, Andy. But first of all, what did you think of the Boy and the Heron? So this is one of Miyazaki's, I think, most challenging works. It's it's kind of grown on me uh, over time. It's definitely something that takes a lot of introspection and thinking about, and it's, it's kind of a, a vegetable <laughs> movie where it's like, it's, it's doing your homework. It's, it's, it's challenging to watch and get through, but I think it's very interesting to talk about afterwards. It's been very divisive. Some people either love it or kind of are confused by it and don't know what it's about. I'm a little bit 
in the middle and it's growing on me, but it's definitely, I think, Miyazaki's most complex work. And I, I've seen the majority of his films and they're they're known for being whimsical, being, you know, easy to di digest, relatable for kids. And this one is not that. I think it's very complicated. I, I think kids would be confused. I know adults that are, that are confused, um, but it has a, a lot of the staples that we've come to love. It has these fantastic worlds and characters and deep, complex themes. And a lot of it is about Miyazaki's life. It's him coping with his own uh, elements and tragic elements from his own life. Like his his mother was was killed or she died when, when he was young. His father was the director of an airplane factory. That's why you see so many airplanes and birds and throughout all, all of his films. It's a big theme. Uh, so I, I think overall I enjoyed it, but it was definitely a challenging watch. Yeah, and I think a lot of what works in Miyazaki films is present here. And more importantly, the first half of the movie re reflects a lot of those previous features. Uh, there are tons of things that jump out to you that feel like old movies. Uh, Mahito arriving out in the country to escape wartime and go to school there is right out of My Neighbor Totoro, right? It is the same. Uh, uh, it also is just like Spirited Away, finding this like tower place with these like four stained glass pieces where it's like, oh yeah, don't don't go in there. That that That's not good. That, that'll that take you somewhere else, you know? Like same thing. And then once he ends up traveling into it, he travels through kind of a portal to the world of the undead, just like Spirited Away is biggest feature. Uh, our character is injured, uh, similar to uh, Princess Mononoke, and suffers the feeling of like hate and malice, like from the war and from what's happened to his family, like in the same way as that feature. The thing is about halfway through this movie, once we start to travel into the world of, of, of real and unreal, those lines blur a bit. And before you know it, like we get almost an abstract dig into Miyazaki's frame of mind about the end of legacy. I think not only about love and lost, but loss uh, and, and, and wishing for something better, but like the end of like your career, uh, there, there's a character particularly uh, in the film who is a bit older and a bit wiser, who is seeking a successor. And uh, that feels really reflective of Miyazaki who's coming out of retirement to make this film. Uh, Wind Rises was very autobiographical. Wind Rises was his last film. Uh, that film was about, his father or a character like his father, at least who made airplanes, this beautiful thing, but for war, like this terrible result, right? Like, and, and, and this film carries that too, that same thing, just like Mononoke and Spirited Away and, and My Neighbor Totoro. But I think because it gets, it starts so grounded and gets so blurry by the end, I think a lot of people leave the theater with a sour, a sour taste in them. No? I, I, for me, it was definitely weird. I was like, I, I, the, the credits rolled and I was thinking, are the people sitting next to me going to have liked this as much as I did? Cause it's definitely odd. It turned, becomes some bold cinema real fast. Yeah. I, I think it's a film that would actually get better on rewatch. Um, I definitely went, scoured the internet for some analysis from, for some in, insight into it. So a lot of it I had figured out a, a lot of it. I kind of hadn't, but kind of knowing more about what it's about, um, I, I think would would help a second viewing. Um, uh, it's interesting. Kind of, kind of the catalyst of the film is, is when, 
uh, he when Mahito goes, he goes to school at in this new place. But he he kind of stands out because his father drives him to school in a big fancy car, and all the kids make fun of him and and taunt him. He ends up getting in in the fight, and he ends up self harming with a stone. He he, he literally just bashes his, his head with a rock and has this big injury, blood everywhere. And like this this is what I mean. Like this isn't really for kids in a lot of ways. Um, and so it, it starts with this self-harm, which is indicative of like, you know, kind of s- the self-hatred, uh, or just frustration at the world around him. His, his mother has died. His, his father has married his aunt. They have a child on the way. He's, he kind of hates all this change. He hates her. He hates where he is. And so the, his journey through the fantastical world is kind of him deciding, is he going to continue on with that, or is he going to choose a different way to live? Which is uh, the the original Japanese title is how do how do you live? Yeah, which uh, it's funny. I love the title "Boy in the Heron," but after having seen it, I almost wish it had just hung on to that because I think it's slightly more profound. But uh, one thing that I think is really special about "Boy in Heron" is the animation. I can tell you with confidence, Hayao Miyazaki has not lost a step. I cannot believe how complicated some of these very basic sequences turn out to be simply because of dedication to the craft. In a time when streaming and television and movies and TikTok is coming at us a million miles a second and people are learning how to make content faster and quicker and better and easier and using AI to generate whatever, it is uniquely profound to watch a film in a theater by somebody who is so dedicated to taking the time to hand animate every single little bit of something that it feels like you're watching people make the pyramids. Like you're watching something from a time that isn't around anymore. Nobody takes the time to make stuff like this, like this studio does. And it does it under the direction of Hayao Miyazaki. Now, it is not all hand-drawn. It is not all watercolor backgrounds. There are some digitals, which I think is good because ultimately that helps us get where we're going. And in a lot of cases, it's not particularly noticeable at all. If anything, it can be used to enhance your experience, like having with rippling water in the background or like a portal kind of something just out of focus that just kind of looks like it needs to. Uh, Ghibli's been experimenting with this in a lot of their work with Amazon Prime television shows. Uh, they, they made a couple of the small things, but what really works is what's in the foreground. And this is going to be our character's hair, wind passing through our character's hair and clothes. And not only that, but fabrics, uh, designs on fabrics, which is wild. There's scenes in here where you have a number of characters running around all who have clocks or gears or little plus and minus signs on their robes. And there'll be eight of them on screen running. And I'm just like, oh my God, every single one of those designs had to be moved on those fabrics by hand, by frame (laughs) for every one of these, you know? Uh, Birds are a huge thematic element in the film. Uh, Not only do we have our heron, uh, and we need to talk about voice acting in a second. We'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, Regarding the heron. Uh, Birds. We have all of these parakeets. We have these incredible creatures. We've got these pelicans. These little soul things that look like they fell right out of any other Studio Ghibli feature. Uh, Feathers. Birds have feathers. Feathers are exhausting to animate. Like, there's so much work poured into the experience that I feel like a lot of people, you know, just don't even see. Because it's like watching any good movie the magic of the film brings you in and before you know it, you forget. Sorry, I've talked way too much about the animation. It's fantastic. <laughs> the movie looks great. Right. Uh, before we move on to, to voice casting, I want to talk a little bit. Uh, one thing that, that I didn't really realize at the time, but uh, this movie in, invokes a, lo- a lot of kind of portal worlds, uh, for lack of a better term, things like Alice in Wonderland, uh, the Chronicles of Nar- Narnia, that kind of 
going down the rabbit hole, going to a, a, a new world and be navigated by a host that may not, may not be entirely on your side, but it kind of has those, those fantastical inspirations, which is really interesting. Uh, this is one of the few Japanese films w- which that has a stellar English American or English voice cast uh, that we're gonna get in, into. Um, we have Christian Bale, Gemma Chan, uh, Robert Pattinson, who as the gray heron, which we'll talk about in a, more in a, in a bit. Mark Hamill, uh, Karen Fukuhara. If you uh, watch The Boys, that's where uh, she's in in that show. Uh, Florence Pugh and uh, Willem Dafoe and uh, Dave Dave Bautista. So a really stacked uh, cast for the voices and Robert Pattinson doing this incredible voice for the heron. Like he's unrecognizable, and it's this really grating. Uh, very, it sounds like it probably hurt his voice to do. To do, uh, it's amazing. I'm not going to try and replicate it. Uh, and apparently, that's what the Japanese actor also did. And so Robert Pattinson wanted to do that. That same, bring that same energy to to his character. Yeah, incredible voice cast. Not only because you're using like really great current talent that you can advertise on, but also because you have a lot of returning actors from previous works. Christian Bale is back from House Moving Castle. Florence Pugh did one of these movies. I can't remember which one. I know Mark Hamill was in Castle on the Sky. He's the bad guy in Castle on the Sky. That one's way older, but he's back. Um, and Pattinson, like if they, there's, I'm sure there's voice acting awards somewhere, but if there was a category at the Oscars, he'd have it. There, there's no question about what he's doing in this movie. It is incredible. We've talked about Pattinson's great voice work before. The Devil All the Time on Netflix. Delusions, right? His work in the lighthouse. Incredible. Uh, like, I, I know my man can do accents. This is another level. Like, nobody ever doubt Pattinson in a voice voice cast. Good God. If anything, if you see Rob Pattinson in a voice cast, you should be excited because he's going to go all the way. Incredible voice cast. Like, everybody's fantastic, including... Not newcomer, but uh, our lead, Mahito, played by Luca Padovan. Uh, he's done some TV, nothing particularly exciting, young kid, but does a fine job holding it up. Otherwise, tragically, I don't know if I have much more to say about this feature. Did I, did I mention the music? The music's incredible. Joe Hisashi, it's nominated for a Golden Globe. Don't know if you've heard that. You did. We, we talked about it like last segment, but stellar music, stellar colors, stellar direction. I don't know if I have much more to say about it. Andy, what do you think? I think I'm ready. Andy, would you recommend The Boy and the Heron? I would with some caveat. I, I would because it, it is an incredible, like masterful animated story um, a, with one of our greatest living directors of film, not just animated film, just film in general, um, who is in the twilight of his career. He's like in his 80s and he says this is his last film. We'll, we'll see because he's retired like three times. Uh, before this so we'll see it, it might actually be so for those reasons alone you should definitely check it out I, w- I will say it is a challenging watch it is long it's a full two hours it's a little slow uh, I think uh, it's got a long first act and it's a little all over the place it's kind of confusing it's very metaphorical very sim- symbolic it's going to make you think a lot but I, I think uh, it's an incredible film and he's an incredible director that you should uh, challenge yourself to go see yeah, I'm in the same boat. I think Born Heron's great. Uh, I think if you're a Ghibli fan, you will enjoy it. Just don't walk in thinking you're watching Spirited Away 2. 
Because, I mean, again, even for parts of it, it feels like it's going that way. It's intentionally subversive. There's even a very explicit scene where a character is traveling into the tar- in, into the tower, like in Spirited Away, and they, and they intentionally go a different direction. Like, I think if you go in with the idea that you're seeing something that is uniquely different, even though it will at times feel similar because of Miyazaki's return to themes like nature and renewal and war, and chaos and malice... I think you'll come out with something really special. I think Boy and the Heron's really good. I think time is only going to look kindly on this feature in his library, in his in his body of work. People will only grow on this movie. Uh, Boy and Heron's great. Please go see it. Uh, and please listen next week when we talk about... What movies are we talking about next week, Andy? What, what are we talking about next week? Wonka. The uh, Willy Wonka uh, prequel film starring Timothy Chalamet. This is supposed to be a big deal. It's got getting a lot of buzz, a lot of positive reviews around. Uh, so we're going to be looking at that. That's going to be a lot of fun. And then we're also going to be looking at Yorgos Lanthimos' uh, Poor Things starring Emma Stone and Mark. What, oh, I can't remember. Hulk. Um, I'm drawing a blank. Anyway, Ruffalo. Uh, Ruffalo. Me too. Mark, I was done. Yeah. Um, so kind of polar opposites because Wonka is definitely a fun family film that's probably going to be a big hit and poor things like there's people walking out out of the the cinema which is what I always want to see if people are walking out throwing up in the aisles that's what the movie I want to go see Um, that's right but those those, and we might be doing our our top 10 we'll we'll see there's still a ton out um, releasing the week after on December 22nd are Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom anyone but you but you, which is the rom-com starring uh, Sydney Sweeney and Glenn, Glenn not Howard, not Howard, Glenn Campbell, Glenn Campbell, Glenn Gary, Glenn, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, always be closing. Uh, um, the Iron Claw, which we're really excited about, which is the uh, the Von Erich wrestling film starring Zac Efron, uh, Jeremy Allen White, and uh, I can't remember the other. That's supposed the kid, to be a huge. The kid from Triangle of Sadness, boy, Paris, it really starts to blur together. Paris. Yeah. Harris Dickinson. Harris Dickinson. That's God, right. uh, we got it. <laughs> we're, we're just, yeah, the Iron, yeah, the Iron Claw. So that we're really looking forward to that. American Fiction with Jeffrey Wright and Migration. So that's six, five, six releases, uh, all on December twenty second. Um, some of those might be limited to just New York and L A. And then Christmas Day, uh, The Color Purple and Ferrari are also opening. So a bunch of movies still to come out. So we might wait on our top ten. We might not. We'll see. But uh, that's what next week looks like. I tell you, I am tragically overhyped for poor things. I have not heard a single poor thing about it. Even when it's like people walked out, like, God, that, that gets us salivating, right? Like, that's what you want to hear. Wonka, <laughs> yeah. meanwhile, let me tell you, I I, I probably was underhyped because I wasn't really excited for that movie. But not only do you have your Paddington director, Paul King, back, uh, critic reviews are incredible. They're saying Chalamet is amazing. It's overselling in Europe. It's overperforming. Like all signs point to Wonka being a banger. And uh, remember, when you're thinking, wow, I can't believe Wonka did so well. You heard it here first on Off Script when Andy said it three months ago that he thought Wonka <laughs> was right. going to be a hit. So, hey, man, that's why it's important to listen to you boys about what's going on at the movies. And we talk about it every single week right here on Off Script Film Review. If you want to keep up with us and keep up with what we're talking about and hear our exciting opinions and maybe some movie news, right? Who's winning the Golden Globes or who might be taking the next Oscar home. The best way to do that is subscribe to Oscar Film Review on your favorite podcast app, on your favorite, I was going to say 
your favorite video app, but YouTube. We're on YouTube. And we're on great things are happening on YouTube, by the way. You should come check it out. We're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, all the usual places. iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartMedia. You might even be listening to one of us on one of... You might even be hearing us on one of those apps right now. There it is. Uh, and I should wrap it up because I'm starting to get tongue-tied. Uh, we're on the web. We're on the internet at mail at offscriptfilmview.com. And offscriptfilmview.com is our website where we post interviews and other stuff and, and exciting things going on uh from all of us it's off script it's a, it's a fine outro it's a fine outro from all of us off script <laughs> bail out the home bail of, out. go go see <laughs> go see the boy in the air from all of us off script the home of old cinema i'm zach lewis and i'm dr draper thanks for watching